Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 18, Mars. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So this is the podcast where we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, bring them right here on the show and talk about all the coolest parts about space. So today we're talking about Mars with Doug Archer, which I feel like is a good topic to bring up now because next week NASA is launching a brand new podcast called Gravity Assist. Hosted by Dr. Jim Green, NASA's Director of Planetary Science, the show will focus on planets and the solar system and beyond. So if you love planetary science, definitely subscribe to that show. It's going to start with a 10-part series on our solar system that starts with the sun and goes all the way out to Pluto and beyond. I know I'm pretty excited about it. So as sort of a taste of what you're going to get on Gravity Assist, Doug Artro will talk about the fourth planet from the sun. Today on Houston, we have a podcast. Doug is a planetary scientist at the NASA Johnson Space Center here in Houston, Texas. And we had a great discussion about the red planet, what it's made of, what it's like on the surface, and why it's such an intriguing place for humans to visit in the next giant leap. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. Doug Archer. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit correct. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. So you're a, you're a planetary scientist. That's your that's your title, right? Plan, planetary scientist. Yep, yep. So so I'm guessing it's exactly what it sounds like. You know the science behind why a planet is the way it is, why it's a planet and how it works and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, and your specialty is Mars. Yep. Sweet. Yeah, I've been working on Mars for about 13, 14 years now. Wow. So what was it that originally fascinated you with, with Mars? So like lots of kids, when I grew up, I was interested in space or being a pilot or something like that, uh, or, or an astronaut. But then when I was, I think, 16, I read a book called The Case for Mars, The Plan to Settle the Red Planet and Why We Must. And it was written by a guy named Bob Zubrin, and he laid out this whole architecture for how we would get to Mars, the rockets that we would, or the type of rocket that we would need what the habitats would, would look like, how long it would take to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, just this whole architecture of how we would get to Mars. And then ultimately, like the long-term goal, right, is turning Mars into a more Earth-like place. But that's like the super long-term t- term goal. Right. So this book came out, uh, again, I think in 1996 or something like that. And there was this big cover article in, in Newsweek and other magazines. It kind of made big news. And I just... Um, read the articles, read the br- read the book, and just got fascinated with the idea of human exploration of Mars, and then learned more about the planet Mars. Uh, and when I was a, an undergrad, I was trying to figure out what what major I wanted to do, and I or what I wanted to major in. And I was thinking about, well, you know, I I think I'm kind of good at this, and I'm kind of good at this. But what I was really passionate about was Mars and Mars exploration. And I didn't know how to make a career of that um, <laughs> because my the where I went to, to undergrad at Brigham Young University in Utah, we didn't have any kind of space-related program there. So I ended up, I just majored in physics. I found a professor who was similarly interested in Mars and another professor in the geology department who had actually done... At Brigham Young? Yeah, at BYU. Okay. There just happened to be a few other kind of space enthusiasts there or cool. Mar- Mars enthusiasts. So they kind of pointed me on the road. And so I took an introduction to planetary geology course 
uh, as an undergrad and just loved that. And they pointed me on the course of, all right, you know, here's here's some courses to take to prepare for grad school, and these this is where you should apply. Uh, and one of the places that I applied was the University of Arizona, uh, which has one of the few programs in planetary science mm-hmm. in the in the country, or the few, one of the few PhD programs. And um, I got accepted and started there in August of 2004. And the reason that I went there is because they had just won the contract from NASA to do the 2007 Mars Phoenix Scout mission. Um, So I got to see, so I I went in and my advisor was the principal investigator for that mission. So kind of the boss over the whole mission. So I went in as a first year grad student and worked on the Phoenix project right after it had been selected. Uh, And so my, my career as a grad student spanned the right after selection, all of the the design design work, verification, all of that for Phoenix, and then landing, surface operations, and then doing the science on the stuff that we learned on this on the surface, in uh, and the mission ended in late 2008. So I just had this kind of walked into this great opportunity of getting involved in an actual Mars mission as a as a graduate student, and just loved working on Mars, loved the the mission operations aspect of it. I mean, one of the most exciting times in my life has been the, the two times when I've been able to remotely witness a robot a robot landing on Mars and just the, yeah. the absolute thrill that that is, the, the, you know, 10 to 15 minutes of, okay, this is it. This is going to, you know, everything, everything comes down to this moment. And then the thrill of seeing the first pictures from these landing sites that no one has ever seen before. Like, it is just a absolutely amazing experience to see these pictures coming in for the first time from another planet and just having that feeling of discovery and exploration. I can imagine because, I mean, you have such a passion for it since you pursued it so far, you know, getting a PhD in in planetary science, you know, being fascinated with planets and then being able to work on or, you know, learn from a robot that was actually on the surface of another planet. Yeah. That is crazy. That is awesome. Um, so that makes me think, why – so, you know, your, your specialty is Mars, and that is a huge part of NASA's journey to Mars, right? We, we really want to put boots on that planet. Yeah. But why that planet? You know, there, obviously we have, we have Venus. We have uh, – you know, Titans looks pretty cool, Enceladus. You know, why, what, what is yeah. it about Mars that's so intriguing? So as far as the boots, it, it all kind of comes back down to the boots on the ground aspect that you're talking about. Like mm-hmm. Titan and Enceladus are very interesting places. Europa, there's other really cool places in the solar system, mm-hmm. uh, including if you're looking for, for life outside of Earth. There's other places that you can go look. Mars is the planet that is the most likely to host life where humans can actually go. Like we are years and I mean probably you know decades to centuries away from being able to, to safely go to Enceladus or, or Titan or Europa or whatever with people that's pretty but, far away yeah. yeah we have the technology to get us to Mars um, and I think that it is we know that in the Martian past Mars was a lot more earth-like than it is today mm-hmm. we don't exactly know how that happened it's still an open question is how how could Mars have sustained this warmer climate um, for various reasons that, that we could get into. Yeah. So we don't exactly know why that's the case, but we know from geologic evidence that Mars was warmer and wetter in the past than it is today. Mm-hmm. And we know from Earth that 
pretty much as soon as life could have existed on Earth, it did. Um, so we don't know how life originates exactly. Um, but again, from Earth, we say, hey, just as soon as the conditions were right for life to exist, we find evidence of life. Mm-hmm. We know that those same conditions existed on Mars. So the question is, can we go, uh, go to a place where we can find evidence of past, more likely past, but potential present life on Mars? Um, and then as far as the astronauts, the astronauts will allow you to do a lot more science um, than robots will. Right, like, because, it, I mean, so we talked about this in a previous episode with Bill Foster about space communication and how okay. difficult that's going to be. You know, yeah. if, if you get a signal to Mars, it's going to take eight minutes up to 40 minutes round trip to, to do anything. But a, yeah. if a human was there, they can make decisions rapid fire. Yeah. You can get a lot more done in a shorter amount of time. I'm guessing that's like the pretty much the basis of why humans are that much better. Probably also the yeah. observational aspect of it. They can, yeah, they can absolutely. find cool parts. Bo- both of those things together. Yeah. So let me, I'll give you an anecdote to show you kind of the limitations of robotic exploration. And, and first I'll say, talk up the benefits of robotic exploration. First of all, mm-hmm. it's something that we can do today. Right? We've been doing it for on Mars now for over 40 years, where the Viking landers landed in um, late 1976. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of experience at operating robots on the surface of Mars, and they are very capable. Like The rovers can, can hold a lot more stuff than astronauts can. You know, <laughs> they don't have to continually go back to the hab. You don't have to send food. You don't have to worry about oxygen. Right. So it's a lot simpler. Um, however, robotics... Uh, robots are only as smart as the humans that program them. Right. And because we have no capability of repairing or fixing something if it goes wrong, we're very cautious about how we operate the rovers or robots. And as you said, we have this communication issue built in that makes it so that, you know, a lot of people think that when we're operating the rovers on Mars, it's um, a man or a woman sitting in a room somewhere with a joystick in front of a TV, <laughs> kind of, you know, driving the rover. Right. But at its closest, Mars and Earth are, uh, there's a four-minute, le- one-way light time delay between Mars and Earth. Right. So eight minutes round trip. And right. at their farthest away, it's about 20 minutes one way or 40 minutes round trip. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine, um, you know, anything that you're seeing is delayed by 40 minutes. So there's no way, at, in the worst case, eight minutes, best case, there's no way that you can do any kind of real-time operations uh, under those circumstances. So what we do is we plan a whole day at a time. So during the Martian night when the rover is asleep, uh, we're awake planning the the next day. And when the rover wakes up, the first thing it does is kind of check in with Earth and get the instructions for what it should be doing that day. Mm. And then it will go through the whole day of planned operations and then go to sleep and the process repeats, wakes up. And so it sends back the data of what it did that day. We look at the data of what it did, how things went, and then plan the next day. So because of our conservatism, because we don't want to break anything, and because the robots are only as smart as we make them, Mm -hmm. you'll have funny instances where, for example, the Phoenix lander, which we knew had a very limited lifetime because it was in the the northern polar region. So at some point, the sun was going to set and not rise again for six months. So, you know, there's nothing that we could have done to make that mission last for years. We knew that going in. Because how cold does it get when the sun sets? Um, When the sun sets kind of for months at a time, it can get down, I think, to like minus 130, which is the frost point for carbon dioxide. So the Martian atmosphere, 
Uh, Celsius, sorry. Uh, but at that point, Celsius. they're relatively similar. Um, but the so the Martian atmosphere is 95% carbon dioxide, and it gets so cold that the atmosphere starts condensing out onto the surface as dry ice. So our lander, oh. after uh, at the end of the Martian winter, northern winter, was buried under a meter of carbon dioxide ice. Okay, so no coming back from that. Yeah, so we, we <laughs> took pictures with high-rise, a, a high-resolution camera around Mars, and it looks like one of the solar panels, um, which is kind of the size of a kitchen table on the lander. It had two panels about that size, and then the lander itself was about the same size. Mm -hmm. And it looks like one of the solar panels was broken um, oh. by, by that. So we knew yeah. that it, you know there was almost no chance that we were going to survive to the next year. We knew that going in. But, but, the, but the polar ice caps are... are they're super interesting. That's why you sent it there, right? So we were we were just south of the p the permanent ice caps, but so there's the I seasonal see. cap of CO2 and then water ice as well. Cool. But then the reason why we we chose the location to send Phoenix is that underneath, or we saw from orbit the signature of water underneath soil, and we went to confirm that, and we did. We uh, in a few ways. One was just during the landing process, our thrusters that we used to land safely blew off the covering of um, of the soil or loose dirt right underneath the thrusters, and you can see this ice-cemented ground. Um, then we had a robotic arm to dig down and found that, depending on exactly where we dug, between 4 and 15 centimeters deep, you found this uh, ice layer where, in a couple places, it looked like it was almost pure water ice, and most of the area that we uncovered was ice-cemented soil. So you could imagine taking a dish full of dirt adding water to it and throwing it in the freezer. Uh, and at these temperatures, or at the Mars Martian temperatures that I was talking about earlier, it's as right. hard as concrete. Wow. Um, but just really to, hard to dig then, probably. Yeah, so we couldn't <laughs> dig into that. The best we could do, we could kind of scrape along the surface and, and collect what we scraped, but we also had a drill um, that could drill about a centimeter into the ice, and then we'd collect the, the, uh, the tailings that came from the drill. Okay. But to get back to the human exploration point, oh, so right. one day... Um, on Mars, we're digging with the Phoenix lander, uh, and so what you do, right, you say, okay, dig here, and then dump here. Um, uh -huh. So dig, you know, in this area that we define, and then dump off in some other area. On the and surface, right? Not, on, not yeah, on the, yeah okay. all on the surface. Okay. So the, um, the, the, the arm is digging, and it goes to dump, and it just so happened to choose a path between the dig location and the dump location that there was a rock in between it that wasn't a big rock. I mean, it was, you know, maybe eight to 10 centimeters across, not a huge rock. Mm -hmm. um, but so on like the very first scoop, and it was supposed to be, supposed to scoop for a while, on the very first scoop, it it's, grabs a scoop of dirt, hits the rock, and just stops. Because <laughs> it doesn't know what to do, right? And then we didn't program it to say like, oh, okay, well, if you hit a rock, then try this other path and right the only know, thing it knew was okay was, you go from here and you go to here it wasn't expecting an interruption yeah yeah, yeah so you know uh, that's the kind of thing so and then you go in the next day mm -hmm. and and you see that wow things didn't go as planned we only have this one tiny little scoop there was supposed to be a whole trench there what happened and you go look at your telemetry and say oh we hit a rock mm -hmm. you know and it wasn't even a very big rock and that's the kind of thing where you know for a human right like <laughs> oh i hit a rock I'll slightly move my hand and go around the rock, <laughs> right. and you don't waste an entire day um, from hitting a small rock. And we encounter stuff like that all the time because, mm -hmm. again, the robot's only as smart as we are. If we encounter something unexpected, the conservative approach is usually to say, 
okay, just stop, and we'll tell you what to do tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a human doesn't have those kind of limitations. As you're saying, we have the observational ability to, first of all, uh, analyze the landscape and say, those look like the most interesting places to go investigate. Let's go there. Mm-hmm. And then you can go do things very quickly. Um, and uh, uh, so the pace of exploration with humans can be can be a lot faster. Now, the cost is also a lot higher. Sure. So you've got to figure out kind of what's your, your science return per dollar. But the pace of explorations with humans can be much, much faster. Right. So, like a, as another example, the Curiosity rover or the Mars Science Laboratory, which has been on Mars now for almost five years. Wow, um, that's right. We have driven um, just over 16 kilometers, which is a long ways. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but for a human in a human class rover, that would probably be a good day or two of driving. Now, right. you know, we've done a whole lot of science along the way, so you can't, it's not just, you know, we haven't just, we landed and we've been d- doing nothing yeah, but driving. Hit the gas pedal and just go for... For yeah. five years. Yeah. But <laughs> just to give kind of a, a, a sense of scale, like I think we, the Opportunity rover um, relatively recently surpassed how far the, ast- the Apollo astronauts had driven on the moon. Wow. Um, and I think, so it took Opportunity over 10 years what the Apollo astronauts did in like three days. Right. So you can see that there's this sense of, there's this uh, difference in scale of kind of what you can accomplish. And it's interesting that you'll find that a lot of people who have experience with robotic exploration actually operating the rovers, um, many, many, many of us are big proponents of human exploration because we understand the limitations, because we know Mm just how much more we could learn and how much more we could do with humans there. Yeah. So I'm guessing, So as a planetary scientist, I, I guess we should have addressed this a while ago, but you, um, do you pick the locations where the rovers are going to go? And which rovers are you kind of working with now? Are you working with Curiosity? Yeah. So right now I'm working with Curiosity. The only other rover that's currently operational is the Opportunity rover, right. um, which is amazing. It's been going for more than 13 years now. Yeah. Way past um, its expected. Yeah, the prime mission was supposed to be 90 days. Wow. So, you know, they're like 4,000% of lifetime or something. I forget the, the number, but yeah, awesome. much, much, much longer than yeah. they ever expected, which is just great and a testament to the the engineers that, that built the rover. Mm-hmm. Um, so I work on Curiosity, and the way that the landing site selection process works is it's actually, it's a, it's a fairly democratic process. Um, they'll have multiple meetings for years in advance of launch for scientists to come and you can propose to land wherever you want and say well okay within reason so the engineers will say okay uh, for this lander it needs to be you know within 30 degrees of the equator or 45 degrees of the equator or whatever and um, you have to be able to fit uh, a landing ellipse that's this size and so the landing ellipse defines is the area in which you are confident your lander is going to land. So you'll say for the MER rovers, the landing ellipse was like 100 kilometers long and I don't remember, 15 kilometers wide or something like that. So you'd have to say, all right, okay. you have to find a place where we can safely land anywhere inside of a 100 kilometer wide or long ellipse by 20 kilometers wide. And MSL, because we got better at guidance and uh, during entry, the landing ellipse was only like 12 kilometers long, I think, and a few kilometers wide, so a 
a factor of 10 improvement yeah. over what we'd done before, which opened up a whole host of other landing sites. Because now you don't have to worry about things being in the yeah, way. Yeah, you don't have to. 100 kilometer kind <clears throat> yeah, of Yeah, you can ellipse. pick a lot more interesting places because your safety requirements are um, relaxed from just kind of the, the, the physical geography standpoint. Mm -hmm. But so, so given those restrictions, you can propose anywhere you want. Mm -hmm. And you can, so you go and you advocate, you make a presentation and you, you advocate for this particular site and why your site is better than any of the other ones, the questions that we're going to address by landing there, um, you know, why it, this site best meets NASA's goals and the goals of the planetary science community. And so, I mean, I think they start out with a list of like 30 to 50 landing sites or something like that. And over time, it'll get narrowed down to usually around three or four. Uh, and then what happens is there will kind of be like a community consensus around, you know, this is our top pick. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the democratic side of things. Mm -hmm. But then ultimately the decision is made, I'm not exactly sure who, but, you know, program officer level, NASA headquarter level, where they'll say, you know, because sometimes the scientists will, will pick things that are like, this is really interesting, but it's a little bit riskier than some other site. And you know, for the scientists, we say, yeah, we want to do it. And, and NASA headquarters might come in and say, guys, it's a lot more important for us to land safely <laughs> than to answer this particular question. Right. So we're going to choose we're going to choose this site. But for okay. the most part, it's very democratic. About you know, basically anybody with a good idea can submit a candidate landing site, and then it gets talked about uh, in the community for years. You analyze it for safety. Um, we actually use our orbital assets that are around Mars now to take a lot of pictures of it to make sure for, for safety reasons that it's, that it's safe. Um, like another little anecdote with, with Phoenix, we had one, we had four candidate landing sites uh, and the top, I, I'm almost positive if I'm remembering correctly, the top we had, had decided on one landing site of, hey, we think this one's gonna be the best. Uh, and then we had the high-rise camera get to Mars kind of right at the tail end of this process. So we didn't have the high enough resolution. In, or we didn't have as high a resolution pictures as we do today. Mm -hmm. So high-rise, one of its top priorities was evaluating these Phoenix potential uh, Phoenix landing sites. And this one that we had decided was going to be our top site, um, the, the principal investigator of the high-rise Im image instrument, which is also built at the University of Arizona, where Phoenix, the Phoenix lander was. So the PI of high-rise was a good friend with the principal investigator of Phoenix, and he sent him an email with the, the the picture of this landing site, and it was filled with massive boulders that were just below the limit of resolution of this other camera, and it would have been an awful, awful <laughs> place to land. Um, so at that point, you know, like, okay, all the other arguments are thrown out because yep. it's not safe. Oh, yeah. And so we went to, I think, plan B, and they imaged that one, and it was like, yeah, that one that one looks good. <laughs> wow. Okay, that would have been, yeah, that would have been pretty yeah. bad. And I think, as I recall, we got the image around Halloween. So he sent it with the caption of, like, happy Halloween, and the whole thing was, like, you know, shaded red or orange or something oh. to make it look even scarier than it actually was. So, wow. yeah, at that point we knew – Okay, that's not we're we're not going to land there. Let's <laughs> let's go somewhere else. Wow. So, I mean, there's there's rovers all over the place, right? It's just you said we've been landing on Mars since the late 70s, since 76, I think you said was the Viking, yeah. right? So, we there's a lot of interesting things about Mars. 
So, I mean, main question, right? So if you're looking at Mars and you want to know, okay, what, what is this planet? Why is this so interesting? Uh-huh. Main question, why is it that red or, or burnt orangey color? Like, what yeah. is the official color of Mars? <laughs> right. Well, red. I mean, that's red? one of yeah. Mars's nicknames is the red planet. Right. I mean, like, okay. that's when I'm writing stuff about Mars, I will frequently call it the red planet just to avoid repeating Mars or Martian over and over. Yes. Um, so Mars gets its red color really from, you know, essentially rust. Um, oh. So you have uh, – and, and some, some parts, though – uh, or, or many places on Mars, it's interesting that it's really only skin deep um, that you can uncover, uh, or if we go and, and either brush off or just blow away some of the dust, you get to, uh, uh, underneath it, it looks a lot darker. Um, but we have this bright dust deposits kind of all over on Mars because Mars can have these global dust storms. So you get this stuff di distributed everywhere. Wow. Um, and the red color really comes from the oxidized iron, which again, rust or hematite, the specific mineral or other things like that that give Mars its red color. So you had oxygen in the atmosphere, uh, which is which is reacting with minerals on the surface to produce this this iron iron oxide which gives mars its red color huh is is the is it sharp the dirt or what do you call it dirt or do you call it uh yeah, yeah soil or we're moving towards calling it soil on soil. mars even though that some terrestrial people say ah soils have to have living things in it but okay. we like regolith on them or the what we're calling on soil on mars is okay. is different from regolith on airless the moon bodies. or other airless bodies yeah. but okay Nice. Uh, so, but there's oxygen in the atmosphere. Not a lot, though, right? Like you can't you can't step out on Mars. You know, out of your if you were to land on Mars and step out of your capsule and breathe the fresh air, right? There's not a lot. Correct. There is so Mars's atmosphere is 95% carbon dioxide, 2% nitrogen, and 2% argon. With so that only adds up to 99%. So then there's a, other little bits, and oxygen is one of the other little bits, but it's it's much much less than 1% oxygen but it's enough to rust the yeah make the well and that's the idea of color. that that's where you know at some point in the past mars's atmosphere probably had more oxygen right uh, and that oxygen reacted with what's on the surface but okay so compared to earth our earth is mostly like nitrogen right 70 percent nitrogen yeah, and then 80 percent roughly 80 percent nitrogen 20 percent okay. oxygen is okay kind of the okay so only 20 percent that's awesome um but, but so the other thing though is there's you can't not enough oxygen to breathe, but it's also less than 1% of the atmospheric pressure of the Earth. So mm. really low pressure, no oxygen. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you could uh, meet a quick end on Mars <laughs> if you just decided to step outside without any kind of protection. Which you know goes to our earlier point as if you were to go there, you would probably need a habitat and you'd need rovers and you need all kinds of spacesuits to walk around. You need all yep. kinds of things to, to, to survive on Mars. but. I mean, Mars is not just you know it's it's not just a blanket of of the soil of this red soil. It's got it's got hills and mountains. It's got one of the biggest. It's the biggest volcano. The, in the biggest solar volcano system. in the solar system, right? So I mean, there has to there was a past of <laughs> geological activity, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So when we look at the history of Mars, we see a lot of evidence early on, like I was saying earlier, that Mars was um, warmer and wetter than it is today. Uh, now, it's still an open debate about how warm it is and how wet it was, um, but we know that it's warmer and wetter because we see evidence for rivers and lakes. Mm -hmm. um, so there was likely, at the very least, snow, possibly rain. 
Um, that, and these, I mean, these aren't like little streams, large channels, huge lakes. It's possible that there was a, uh, a, a massive ocean. So we know that Mars was warmer and wetter in the past. And then kind of after that, Mars dries out. And then you have all this abundant evidence of what you're talking about, the volcanic activity. Mm-hmm. Really, I mean, all over the place on the surface of the planet. Um, that is has really kind of resurfaced a lot of Mars. We see we still see a lot of a lot of craters, um, but there's volcanic activity all over the place. And like you said, so we have Olympus Mons that's like 20 kilometers high, the biggest volcano in the solar system. Super big. Um, so MSL or the Curiosity rover landed at the bottom of Gale Crater, which is a 150 kilometer wide crater that's five kilometers deep, and right in the middle of the crater is a five kilometer high mountain. So that's, I mean, this is, it is a mountain. It's not a hill. Yeah. Um, it is, it is huge. I mean, this is, wow. you know, it, it's like rivals Mount Rainier or Mount Shasta or something. Like it okay. is big. Yeah. It's, it's really big. It would be one of the largest mountains in kind of the lower 48 United States. Wow. Um, and it's, we're still kind of trying to figure out exactly how it was formed. One of the interesting things about it is that it was, it was not formed by so most mountains on the earth uh, are formed through plate tectonics right the the uh, continental plates kind of crashing against each other um, or a subduction of an oceanic plate pushing up mountains and that's how we get mountains on the earth on mars we don't really have plate tectonics um, so you can form mountains either from volcanoes there might be some tectonic activity but what we're seeing in mount sharp is likely the result of uh, actually the crater to some degree filling up with sediment, so dirt, rock, whatever, huh. um, uh, around a pre-existing central peak in the crater that we still see some evidence for, but what the mountain that we see is much, much larger than the central peak would have been, mm-hmm. and then eroding away into the shape that we see today. So completely different form of, uh, or completely different formation mechanism for a mountain. I don't, I can't think of any example or any place on the earth where you would ever see anything like this wow Um, but still we form this five kilometer high mountain and the cool thing about it though is because it is this um, composed of sedimentary layers that were laid down over hundreds of millions of years Mm -hmm. um, as we drive up the mountain we are seeing different we're seeing different layers and we get a, a window into mars's geologic past so we can learn something about you know what was mars's environment like three and a half billion years ago. And the reason that we picked this location is that the lower part of the mountain was created when Mars was warmer and wetter, and the upper part was created when Mars was colder and drier. So we're going to have the opportunity to drive across these materials where that span again hundreds of millions of years of geologic time you kind of like mars went under this yeah when where mars underwent this fundamental geologic change or climate change so trying to figure out you know what what happened it's kind of like so i mean i'm from pennsylvania so i I remember driving down the highway and seeing you know they they blew up some of the rocks and then you can see the layer oh yeah road cuts are the geologist's best friend yeah (laughs) so it's kind of like i mean the mountain itself it are those you know layers of rock as you Uh drive up is i guess that would be kind of a good comparison yeah yeah it's just on mars it might actually be a little bit easier to interpret some of it because on the earth uh again the mountain you had the layers so you had the layers 
kind of laid down, creating the rock, and then you'll have these other tectonic events that push them up. Mm-hmm. And in the process, things get all all kinds of jumbled. <laughs> um, but on Mars, there was no tectonism, so they laid the the rocks got laid down, and then they get eroded away. But there's nothing that you know has it was uh, pushed up from from kilometers deeper or or you know, overturned, creating all kinds of confusion. So it's, if we can get there to the, the right places, unfortunately on Mars there's no road cuts, so we have to <laughs> do with, with uh, we have to use what, we, what we're given. Um, but it's, it's but very similar to what you'd see in a lot of places on the Earth. Wow. Okay, so another main difference, right, is um, I guess, you know, the atmosphere. We just had a, a recent discovery about how Mars's atmosphere has changed over time, right? Uh-huh. And how what's the radiation environment like on the surface so yeah the atmosphere so that's two things the atmosphere again we know that it was warmer and wetter in the past so that we know that the atmosphere had to be a lot thicker than it is today to hold in that heat Um, and we're again though we're still unclear how mars was able to be as warm and wet as it was there's something some kind of magic combination of of pressure and chemical elements in the in the atmosphere that had to have existed to allow Mars to be warmer and wetter, and that's still something that people are debating today. Hmm. Um, so how that relates to radiation is that on the Earth, there's a few things pr- that protect, protect us from the radiation environment in space. Mm-hmm. Um, one is Earth has a magnetic field. Mm-hmm. Um, that does a lot of the work. The other thing is we have a relatively thick atmosphere, so anything that makes it through the magnetic field um, is generally gonna get stopped in the atmosphere. So Mars doesn't have either of those things, Uh, And there's other types of radiation as well. So like ultraviolet radiation, which is, you know, not great for people. Earth has an ozone layer. Mars, depending on the season, will have a tiny bit of ozone in the atmosphere, but not really enough to to effectively shield you from UV. So you get ultraviolet light um, down to the surface, uh, down to the surface of Mars, which on the Earth would be sterilizing. Like if you're, you know, you stick a butt. That's one of the things that we do on Earth to sterilize water or whatever. If you shine it with with UV light that Mars is getting bathed in all the time. Oh. <laughs> um, so the very surface of Mars is not terribly hospitable to life. Um, but the, the good news is, you know, the iron oxides, for example, are a very good sunscreen. So if you're under a couple of microns, so like a human hair's width of iron oxide will do a pretty good job protecting you from ultraviolet light. Um, so that's one type of radiation. The other type is, again, the kind of the space radiation environment where you have these high energy galactic cosmic rays and uh, stuff the sun's shooting at you all the time oh yeah um so this is something that you have to be for uh for robots it's something that we have to be aware of as well because we actually have to use special electronics that are like radiation hardened Hmm. um for people you have a couple things you need to do one is you have to have some kind of some kind of shielding uh, and then the other is just kind of, you know, what your mission architecture is. You want to spend as little time in space as possible. Right. Um, but, I, I mean, what I think, there's a few things that you can do to shield you from radiation. Like recently, we have a radiation detector on Curiosity on Mars. Uh, relatively recently, we were right up next to a hill doing some science, and the, the counts on the radiation detector went way down. Because this radiation, it's not just coming from the sun. It's coming from everywhere in the so- in the sky, basically uniformly. Huh. So if you can block out any part of the sky, you're going to lower your your radiation dosage. So if you're an astronaut, you'd you'd probably want to build your habitat up close to 
a little hill or a mountain and maybe one of the first things that you do when you get there or you had robots do this before you got there is um, uh, start filling up sandbags and put it on the roof of your habitat because <laughs> uh, you just need more mass. That, that's what the atmosphere is on yeah. Earth. It's just more mass in between the radiation environment and the ground. So you just need more mass on top of you to, to shield you from this radiation. And then again, like the UV stuff, an astronaut in a spacesuit will be just fine. I'm imagining like in Star Wars, like Luke Skywalker's house, how it just had the, the big, <laughs> the big dome, dome made of the, yeah, on Tatooine made of the, it looked like sand. So yeah. just like making like a sand dome. <laughs> yeah. So you need something like that. Uh, Cause again, you know, like when we went to the moon, the lunar lander was, I forget, but you know, I, as I recall, like paper thin, right? Like it wasn't a long duration, um, or they weren't so they weren't planning on staying there for a long time. So right. on Mars, if you're going to stay there for like a year and a half, um, which is generally the the mission architecture says about six months uh, trip to Mars to get to Mars, a year and a half on the surface, six months back. So if you're going to spend a year and a half on the surface of Mars you need to do something to shield yourself from radiation once you get there. Definitely. So um, in the movie The Martian, there was a severe dust storm. Yes. From what I understand, that's wouldn't really happen, right? Correct. Yeah. So, <laughs> and this is, so I, I gotta say though, cause no, not a knock against Andy Weir at all. Cause yeah. when he was at JSC a couple of years ago, um, he gave a presentation and, and said, okay, before you guys ask any questions, I know that the dust storm wasn't <laughs> realistic. He was probably that, very nervous about his audience. He's like, these yeah. are the guys that know. Oh, yeah, no. so yeah. he just yeah. said, you know, I, I wanted to write a book about kind of like yeah. Robinson Crusoe on Mars, and I had to do something to get him stranded there. Right. So the dust storm is not realistic because Mars's atmospheric pressure, again, is less than 1% of the Earth, mm -hmm. uh, Earth's atmospheric pressure. So even when you have very fast winds, they're not very strong. So you could have like a 100 mile an hour gust and it'll feel like less a, a less than 10 mile an hour wind on the surface of the earth. Like, mm. So it's just not strong enough to push anything over that size. Um, the other difference is there are dust storms on Mars and they can be planet encircling. Right, um, yeah, which is that Yeah, it's, which is really interesting. Um, something that obviously doesn't happen on the earth. Right. Um, thankfully, yeah. <laughs> but the way that it works, and you can go look at, there's pictures of this because the Opportunity rover has been there during, I don't think it was a planet encircling one, but at least a very regional, like large scale dust storm. Mm -hmm. And the way that it looks is at the beginning of the dust storm, you know, you have, or before the dust storm starts, you have pretty clear skies. And then something like 20 to 30 days later, you can't even see the sun at all anymore. It just maybe gets slightly lighter br or brighter during the day, but it's a very gradual increase from day to day. It's not like in the Martian, the, ah, here's this massive dust storm barreling down on yeah. us. Let's get, let's it, all go inside. It's tipping the Mav. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was, so Mars does have these, these really large dust storms, but right. the, the, they're just not, not strong enough to really have to worry about much. Does it have its own weather too? It has like lightning and stuff, right? You know, I don't know about lightning. Uh, it might. I think I do know of people who have said that that uh, it probably does have lightning, and mm -hmm. the lightning could create interesting chemicals that we see in the atmosphere and on the surface. And so maybe that's a signature of lightning. I don't know that we've ever directly observed lightning. Mm -hmm. um, but Mars absolutely has weather. It's uh, is it is still a very dynamic place. Um, the main agent of change on Mars is wind. Um, mm -hmm. It just happens at a slower pace than on the Earth. But 
we have Mars has sand dunes that march across the surface. It has this dust that can blow all over the place. Um, Mars has dust devils. So if you live in a little bit drier, more arid environment, and you see a, and you you know what a dust devil is, we have we see dust devils on Mars Those all the, the time. Yeah, they look kind of like little tornadoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah, a sand tornado <laughs> is a good description. <laughs> and we've actually been lucky with some of those. So Spirit and Opportunity. I know this happened with Opportunity. I'm pretty sure it happened with both of them. So they're solar-powered rovers. So they saw the output from their solar panels was decreasing over time because <laughs> you're constantly getting dust settling out of the atmosphere. And then, so the, the, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it had gotten down to like half of the solar panel output from when it landed. <laughs> and then they look at the data and from one day to the next, it jumps back up to the same amount of power they were getting on like day one of landing. Um, and so they look at their solar panels and they've been completely cleaned. So oh. what they think happened is a dust devil passed directly over the rover <laughs> and did us a huge favor by cleaning off the solar panels. Like <laughs> there's no way that opportunity would still be alive had that not happened multiple times. Wow. Okay, so they're pretty frequent then if they Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. this happens all the time. And wow. like I you can actually see the dust devil tracks from space. Uh, a friend of mine, Dave Choi, did some work on this where you can see dust devil tracks all over the place because what I said earlier, you have this bright red dust that gets kind of uh, laid down uniformly over the surface. Mm -hmm. And when a dust devil comes through, it'll suck that up off the surface and move it somewhere else. So you see these tracks of dust devils all over the place. And at oh. first we didn't really know what we were looking at. And then somebody, I forget who, said... Hey, those are those are dust devil tracks, and yeah, they are all over the place on Mars. We have seen them um, everywhere. Everywhere we've been looking, we have seen them. It's just amazing that you can think of, you know, you can imagine what's going on at the surface level of another planet, as yeah. if as if it's just like another place on Earth, but we're talking about another and a completely different planet. Yeah, yeah. a completely different planet. Yeah. So that is wild. Yeah, I, and another thing that Phoenix saw is we actually saw snow. And frost deposition. I mean, it was, you know, teeny, teeny, tiny bit of snow. Right. But it was snow. Yeah. So it's kind of like how, in, I mean, I, like I said, I'm from Pennsylvania and we get snow all the time. But here, when there's snow, <laughs> everyone loses yeah. their minds. Yes. Yeah. It might be, well, it, so it might snow on Mars more frequently than in Houston, but it sure, it doesn't <laughs> snow a lot. Ah, <laughs> oh, I would like to see snow on Mars. That would be pretty cool. So, I mean, being a planetary scientist and kind of, I mean, we, you've alluded to a lot, you know, if talking boots on the ground, this is what you have to do, this is what you have to think. Uh -huh. I'm assuming you've thought a lot about, you know, what a human mission to Mars would have to look like to be successful. From a scientific perspective? Yes. Or, yeah, so, yeah. so I would say probably the holy grail from a scientific perspective, and this is one of the things that humans would really enable, was it would be the ability to drill. Because, uh, you know, we say on MSO we have a drill, and that's true, but we can drill down all of six centimeters. Hmm. So, you know, a couple, like three inches, two and a half inches. So not very far. We are literally just scratching the surface of Mars. Yeah. And if you want to go to a place, again, getting back to the radiation environment, um, the radiation, uh, you have a lot of radiation or energy deposition in the top meter of Martian soil. So any life that existed there that was maybe, you know, billions of years old has been either um, heavily transformed or completely destroyed. So it would be really hard to find the signature of life anywhere within the top meter. <laughs> so we need to go deeper. 
And if you want to go really deep, you need you need humans because drilling is something that is very difficult to do kind of in an automated way, even on the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, you need people there to kind of troubleshoot when things go wrong mm-hmm. and fix stuff that breaks or whatever. So that to me is one of the the uh, the things that human would humans would do. The other thing is, you know, I think we have um, we've been studying Mars from the surface, like I said, for 40 years now, but still we've only landed in let's see so we have viking lander one and two pathfinder mer phoenix msl so seven successful landings on the surface of mars so that's like saying pick seven places on earth spread out by you know a thousand miles or so each mm-hmm. and tell me about the entire planet <laughs> um and obviously that's not like the, the whole history of the planet over four and a half billion years and by the way, you can only go about 10 kilometers from wherever you land. Wow. So we have, there are so many other places on Mars that we know nothing about that you look from orbit and say, what the heck happened there? Yeah. <laughs> what, what is this? What's going on there? Um, and there's a lot of places from orbit as well where uh, some places we can kind of tell something about the mineralogy. Other places, they're completely covered in dust, so we really have no idea what the mineralogy is of what's under underneath it. So another thing that humans will give you is the ability to go farther from wherever you're starting. And again, the boots on the ground, people saying, hey, this looks really interesting. Let's chase this down and go over there. Um, also, we would be greatly benefited by bringing samples back from Mars on purpose, where we know where they come from. Like right. We have Martian meteorites, but we don't really know where they came from. Mm-hmm. Um, so knowing the context of the samples uh, and being able to, to use the instruments that we have on Earth, which are much better than the instruments that we send to Mars because of size, uh, volume, power, whatever, um, we could do a lot with the sample return from, from Mars and astronauts, like from the moon, astronauts brought back hundreds of kilograms of sample. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's it's a bit more expensive to get back st- or stuff back from Mars, so we might not have quite as many samples. But we would have we'd we'd bring we would definitely bring back samples with the astronauts. So that's another thing that having people there on the ground enable you to do. Yeah, knowing knowing the science, you you this will be the last question, and then we'll and then we'll kind of wrap up. But okay. knowing the science of of the planet, kind of. What, what are some of the key things that we have to be paying attention for to make sure that humans um, can survive and operate in the most yeah. efficient way? Because, you, you know, I'm, I'm sh- like you mentioned radiation a couple times. Radiation is obviously a concern. But, you know, what do we have to think about in terms of the way we move and how far we can go? And, you yeah. know, you obviously said you already talked about a mission profile, how long we can be there. Right. So, yeah, radiation is one of the big ones. Uh, we're still not totally sure how the human body works for a long period of time in a lower gravity situation. Like, we have people in zero-G, right? And, right. Um, but Mars is 40% the gravity of the Earth. We don't really know what the effects are of the human body. Uh, unfortunately, that's incredibly difficult to simulate, so <laughs> we probably really won't know until we go. Right. Um, Otherwise, though, there are other kind of environmental hazards that you need to be aware of, like you referred to the dust. Um, so that's something that you, you just need to make sure that you have good filtration systems. Oh, um, okay. It's uh, the, one of the main problems for the dust, though, is for the suits. Like if you have a spacesuit with mm-hmm. seals and you have joints that move uh, and you have dust, 
getting into those joints, which we know it will, it did on the moon, mm-hmm. um, then that can be that can be problematic. So you know, how do you design your seals? Um, how many replacement seals do you need? Or you know, design your spacesuit to be repairable by the astronauts on Mars? Um, and I mean, but this is also kind of an open question: is that we don't really know the nature of Martian dust. We don't know if it will be kind of as sharp and damaging as some of the lunar dust because the lunar dust and Mars dust form in two different ways. Like mm-hmm. we know that we know the average particle size of the Martian dust that gets into the atmosphere is like five microns. But so that's great. It's good to know that. But you need to know a little bit more about the size, shape, hardness, those kinds of things of the dust about the dust when you're talking to people about seals for spacesuits and spacecraft. Um, the other thing is um, being aware of potential toxic things on the surface, uh, l- like perchlorate, for example, which is an oxidized chlorine that molecule that the Phoenix lander discovered in 2008. Um, and so we know that perchlorate is toxic to people, mm-hmm. um, but at really high quantities. So it, it's less of a concern for inhalation for people, uh, however much perchlorate might be in the dust. Mm-hmm. So as, as I like to tell people, as long as your d- astronauts are not eating um, kilograms of soil every day, they're fine. Um, but kilograms, yeah, yeah, it really would have to be. Soil. Yeah, right. So <laughs> that's generally fairly low on. Hey guys, don't eat dirt. Yeah, okay, we got it. We check that one off. It's um, very tempting, but yeah. But so the one thing that we do have to we do have to do more research into is um, there are if you grow plants in soil that have perchlorate. There are some plants that can Uh, concentrate perchlorate in certain parts of the plant. So you need to know, like, okay, if we're planning on living off of this, first of all, can it grow in a soil that has perchlorate? And if it does, um, what, where does the perchlorate go? Is this something that we need to be concerned about? So Mm -hmm. um, these are, those are kind of questions that we're answering. But the, the exciting thing is that we have the data to actually be able to address those questions, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, 40 years ago at the end of Apollo, when we talked first talked about going on to Mars, we didn't know any of this stuff. Right. We didn't. We hardly knew anything about Mars. But now we have a significant amount of experience and a, a large body of knowledge about what the surface of Mars is like. What all the stuff we talked about today. What mm-hmm. What is the weather like? What's the temperature? What's the pressure? What's the chemical composition? What's the mineralogy? What are the physical properties of the soil? If you want to build something there or land something, what's it, you know, what's it like? What are the things that we need to worry about? And that's what's really kind of amazing a- about the journey to Mars right now is that really for the first time, we have the information to go out and, and um, we, we know the questions that we need to answer. We don't know the answers to all the questions yet, but for the most part, we know a lot of the questions that we need to answer. Mm-hmm. And I'll just add um, one final thing so you don't think it's, that it's, it's all bad. There's a lot of stuff, and a lot of the work that mm-hmm. we're doing isn't just um, what are the bad things about Mars, but what's on Mars that we can use for humans to help enable future exploration. Hey, um, yeah. Like there's a, a an instrument called MOXIE, and I sorry that's an acronym that I don't know what it stands for, <laughs> um, but basically it ingests atmosphere, uh, and it breaks the carbon dioxide and oxygen. So you're you're forming oxygen oxygen, which the idea is you'd use that for ro- your oxidizer and rocket fuel. Nice. And you can also one of the things that I'm directly involved in is. Um, trying to extract water out of Martian materials. So water can be really useful because, you know, astronauts need water to drink for food. You can break the water through um, 
electrolysis or other ways uh, into hydrogen and oxygen. You can mm -hmm. breathe the oxygen. Hydrogen and oxygen can be used as rocket fuels or, or fuel for a fuel cell. There's all kinds of stuff that you can do just with water. Mm -hmm. um, and so every, you know, every kilogram of material that we don't have to bring with us makes it more likely that we will actually be able to go because it lowers the cost and complexity of the overall mission. So we're trying to figure out from what's on, what is on Mars today that we can use to our advantage? And again, this is, these are questions that we're now being able to answer based on the exploration work that we've done over the past 40 years. That's awesome. I'm excited. I want to go to Mars like right now. Me too. Let's <laughs> <That> do it. <laughs> that was a nice little summary of like all the, all the things we talked about too. That was great. I think that's all the time we have. Uh, Doug, thanks for coming on the show today. Um, My pleasure. That was awesome. So cool. I learned so much about Mars. I had so many questions and like, Almost all of them got answered. Uh, for the listeners, if you do want to know more, I'm, I'd be surprised, but actually there are way more questions. We can talk forever about Mars. But if you want to stay uh, tuned after the music that we have at the end here, uh, we'll talk to all the sites you can go to and learn more, and maybe you'll find a question that you want to ask, and we'll tell you how to submit that. So thanks again, Doug, for coming on the show. We'll You're see welcome. you uh, maybe next time, maybe one more time. Sure. <laughs> Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked about Mars, the red planet, and everything about it. But uh, when I say everything, I don't truly mean everything. Obviously, there's a lot more. We may do another podcast in the future, but if you want to know more about the red planet right now, just go to nasa.gov. Right at the top, there's a little gray bar, and you can see the journey to Mars. That's one of our campaigns. And uh, if you click on that tab, you can learn all of the new things, all of the new uh, features and all the new articles, scientific findings, uh, right on that page. So just click on the Journey to Mars page to go there. Uh, on social media, we're pretty active. Uh, Doug Archer here, Dr. Doug Archer, is part of the Astromaterials group, uh, what we call Aries. You can find them on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And you can also go to the NASA Johnson pages, uh, Facebook, NASA Johnson Space Center. Uh, we're also on Twitter and Instagram. On any of those pages, just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform, whichever one you like, and uh, submit an idea for the show. Maybe you have a question about Mars, or maybe you have a new idea or a new question that maybe we can make a whole podcast episode out of. So uh, make sure to mention it's for Houston we have a podcast, and we know to bring it on this particular show. Uh, this podcast was recorded on April 20th, 2017. Thanks to John Stoll and Alex Perryman for producing the episode. And thanks again to Dr. Doug Archer for coming on the show. See you in 6.79 souls. It's a week in Mars time. You know what? Never mind. We'll just see you next week. <laughs>